Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Please be seated. Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to meditate on your word, so ably read to us this morning, we thank you. We ask you for your grace and understanding of your word. Amen. Well, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. We've had a fair bit about northern and southern kingdoms in our teachings of late. But Hosea's message is one of the most poignant and tender of all of the Old Testament prophets. You mightn't have thought that from the readings you read this morning, but believe me, it's true. God first taught Hosea to know the deep heart of God so that he might then go and teach the Israelites those same deep truths about God. This is Hosea's story. God told Hosea to marry a young woman by the name of Gomer. They had three children. Jezreel, Lo-Ruhama, which means not loved. Imagine calling a child that name. And lo am I, which means not my people. Well, Gomer turned out to be, to put it a bit bluntly, a bit of a tart. She committed adultery many times. She ran off, leaving Hosea and the children, taking up with a series of lovers who provided her with money and fine clothes. When the lovers lost interest, she sold herself for cash. She was the original Queen of Tarts. But of course, the good times don't always last. And as the years went by, Gomer became a bit more worn and a bit less lovely. And the money didn't come in like it used to. No doubt she caught a few STDs as well as you tend to do when you play around. And things went from bad to worse to much worse. And she finally hit rock bottom selling herself into slavery to pay her debts. Dirty, naked, emaciated, diseased, she was displayed for sale in the public market. And at this point, God spoke to Hosea again and told him to go and purchase his wife from the slave market and bring her home. Show your love to your wife again, though she is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Now the standard price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. We all know that divorce is the shortest path to poverty, and Hosea didn't have that much cash at hand with three kids at home. So he had to scrimp around and empty his storehouse to get some money together. And he managed to scratch together 15 pieces of silver and made up the balance with a bag of barley and a flagon of wine. Jacob's Creek, probably. The bidding was, think about that, the bidding was probably not very spirited for such a poor specimen. 
So Hosea raised his hand and bid the minimum price. The auctioneer brought down the hammer and slave number 436 was sold. Hosea spent all that he had to buy back his wayward wife. The neighbours raised their eyebrows. And then Hosea came to Gomer, standing miserably alone, loosened the bonds that bound her, put a robe over her naked body to hide her public humiliation and brought her home. It's hard to imagine a more delicate story of love and redemption. God used Hosea to tell the nation of Israel just how far they had strayed from him and how they had treated their covenant relationship with God as a cheating wife treats a loving husband. In 1968, at an ancient cemetery in Hebron, an archaeologist excavated a slab of stone with this inscription. It was a person's name, and then it read, Blessed may he be by Yahweh and his Asherah. The excavation was dated to the 8th century, the time of Hosea's prophecies. It's a remarkable piece of evidence of the degree to which Israelite worship had become syncretized, joined in with Canaanite worship. <clears throat> Asherah, or Astarte, was the central female goddess of Canaanite worship, and this inscription shows her as the consort of Yahweh, the, the bridal partner, if you like, of Yahweh, And Yahweh was the one true God of Israel, of whom he had said to Israel, you shall have no other gods beside me. Astarte was worshipped through prostitution and sexual deviance of many kinds. It's no wonder that God called Hosea to speak to the Israelites in these terms. God had made a covenant with Israel and promised to be their God. And their side of the covenant was that they would worship him only and his holy standards. Now, there's a popular idea amongst some Christians that the Old Testament religion was all about law and following a set of rules that God made up, while the New Testament religion is all about grace and forgiveness. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is just not the Christian story. And it was never the Hebrew story. It was never the case that God said to Israel, look, here's a bunch of rules and laws. You obey these and then I will love and care for you. It happened precisely the other way around. God delivered them first. That's what the Exodus was all about. And then promised to be their God and their sustainer. And as a response to his covenant love already shown and displayed to them, they would live according to his standards of righteousness and truth. We never get to God by obeying his rules. We obey his rules because he first saved us and initiated a covenant of love with us. We love him because he first loved us. So God gave his law to the people of Israel not to enslave them, 
but to make them truly free. So God says in Leviticus, keep my decrees and laws for the, purpose, for the person who, who obeys them will live by them. And then Paul, writing about the same law in the New Testament degrees, he says, so the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's good. You may have heard this saying. We don't break God's laws. We just break ourselves on them. You need to take about five years to think about that. It's such a deep concept. God's laws are foundational to this world. If you defy the law of gravity, you hurt yourself. Anybody else that you happen to fall on. If you have an extramarital affair, you hurt yourself and any others who might be involved with you. God doesn't actually have to do anything to punish us. We do that ourselves by the results of our actions. Now in Israel's case, the nation's border had been protected for centuries from attack by the nation of Syria. You can see it on the screen with its capital at Damascus, a city that's much in our own news of late. And Syria provided a kind of buffer state on the eastern border of Israel. And it took all the first attacks and it had very strong armies. And any attack from the area that we now know as Iran and Iraq would be repulsed at Syria. And Israel generally got off scot-free. But in 803 BC, Assyrian armies conquered the nation of Syria decisively. And then, with no protection on Israel's borders, it was only a matter of time before Israel suffered a major invasion. It wasn't that God made it happen. He just let Israel do what it wanted. They decided they preferred foreign gods, so God politely withdrew. Fifty years later, the Assyrian warlord Tiglath-Pileser was eyeing off Israel, and Hosea became a prophet. Some Christians find it hard to reconcile the idea of a God of love with a God of judgment. You might be in that camp. Some parts of the contemporary church have actually quite jettisoned the idea of a God who actually calls his people to account. It's popular these days, I'm sure you've heard this, to claim that God loves us unconditionally. Who hasn't heard a preacher or a song or read a book or a blog that made this claim that God loves us all unconditionally? Let me be very clear about this. There is no such God. I know that's shocking some of you. But there is no such God, not in the pagan world and not in the Christian world. The idea of a Christian God who loves unconditionally is the fantasy of adults who don't want to grow up. Adults who have grown out of Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and who need a feel-good replacement. And to teach that concept to young people seems to me to teach a serious error about God that is likely to entrap them into a false carelessness about sin. We'll come back to this in a minute. There's more to be said. But Hosea suffered from no such deception. In Hosea 2.19 we're introduced to a word that defines exactly how Hosea learnt that God loves. I will betroth you to me forever. 
I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and compassion. Betroth, an ancient word meaning engage. I'll get engaged to you to be married. Now, there are actually four words here that I would love to preach to you about, but each of them needs a sermon all of its own. Righteousness, justice, loving kindness and compassion. Great regret and even more self-control, I'm going to ignore three of them and just focus on one, loving-kindness. The, the NIV, rather, uses the word love in this verse, but that's a very weak description of what the Hebrew word means. I like to use the word covenant love. The Hebrew word, for what it's worth, is chesed, and it's used some 248 times in the Old Testament. And it always means love that is conditioned by a covenant, an agreement. Notice that in our verse, there's a relation to a marriage covenant. I will betroth you, I will love you, and you will love me. And in your Bible, you will find the word chesed is most commonly translated by a range of words such as mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, unfailing love, covenant love. Here's just a few well-known passages that you'll probably recognise from different parts of the Bible. From Joshua. Now then, since I have dealt chesed kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal chesed kindly with me. Therefore, from 1 Samuel, deal chesed kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a sacred covenant with you. From Deuteronomy. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of chesed, love, to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. A very familiar verse from Micah. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love chesed, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? From Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining chesed love to the thousandth generation, forgiving wickedness and sin. From the Psalms, where chesed's a very common word. Surely goodness and chesed, mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his chesed, his love endures forever. I said before, and some of you are still mulling on it, that it was simply not true to say that God loves unconditionally. What Hosea teaches us to say about God is that God always loves faithfully. When God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel, he demanded that they live up to certain standards of living. When Prince Harry brings you to live in the royal palace, you'd better learn to live like a princess. We might say, even if your ancestry was in slavery. In the New Testament, it was no different. Jesus came to reveal the God of the Old Testament, not a new God. When Jesus forgave sinners, he told them, go and sin no more. When he was asked by a rich man how to gain eternal life, he told him to get rid of the riches that were his greatest love. If a man remains in me and I in him, said Jesus, he'll bear much fruit. 
If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. The writers to the Hebrew reminds us that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then there's no sacrifice for sins left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Actually, when we say that God loves us unconditionally, we are actually remaking God in our image. It is we who should love God unconditionally. We don't love God just because he makes us healthy or wealthy. We don't stop loving God if our child dies or if we get cancer or if someone in the church offends us. The reason that we can and should love God unconditionally is because he is always reliable. You would love somebody on whom you could always rely. You would love them unconditionally. You wouldn't need to say, if you do this, I will do that. He is always good, always love. God doesn't love us in the same way precisely because we are not reliable. He loves us faithfully because he is able to, being God. But our fickleness causes him to place conditions on us in his covenant with us when he promises to love us faithfully. A God who loves unconditionally is a modern fiction. What we learn from Hosea is that a God who loves faithfully and steadfastly is an ancient truth. Hosea's story is the story of a man whose wife betrayed him and caused him great sorrow, but it's also the story of a man who acts as God acts, who learns in his humanity that God in his divinity knows and lives out the very truth of love. A God who will lovingly restore his people to him as they seek him in repentance. There is no sin that he will not forgive, but he requires us to live in him, to abide in him as he abides in us. The metaphor of marriage is the dominant metaphor of the Bible to describe God's relationship with his people. It turns up over and again in the scriptures. He will love us faithfully as a good husband should. He will never abandon us. He will never abuse us. We are called in return to love him faithfully. We are to build ourselves on his standards, not break ourselves on them. And when we fail... God's love, which is not unconditional but is always faithful, will come searching for us. This is the story behind Jesus' many parables. God seeking out the lost sheep, the lost son, the wounded traveller. No matter what it costs, the saviour God will save his people. There was nothing unconditional about Jesus' death on the cross. Unless Jesus, the Son of God, committed, submitted himself to death, we could never be saved. There was a massive condition to the saving love of God and Jesus met that condition in his own suffering and death. Now let me, as we finish, tell you something very beautiful. The name Hosea or Hosea is the same as the name Joshua. 
It means God saves. God is salvation. And it was the same name that the angel gave to Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Greek translation of Hosea, Jeshua, Joshua is Jesus. In English, we call him Jesus. The image of Hosea in the Old Testament, counting out every last coin, sweeping up every last kernel of grain, looking for the last flagon of wine in the cellar to come up with enough to buy back his adulterous wife is an image of God giving up everything. Everything that he had to redeem us. He gave up his very own life. Let us never forget that image of Hosea. Never forget the price. To do so would be to forget just how faithfully God loves us and how much he paid to buy us back. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.